Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and today we are actually having a re-air. So this is a re-air from an episode last year, I believe it was episode 68, and that was with Shay Myers, a.k.a. Shay the Farm Kid. So social media is a really powerful tool that, you know, I'm trying to use with Farm Traveler. I've got my own personal Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff, too. You've probably got your own social media account. Um, and a lot of people are still trying to figure out how to use social media to connect to the consumers. That's what farmers are wondering. They're trying to figure out how to do that, how to go exactly or how to go straight to the consumer and also, maybe you, a consumer, are trying to figure out how you can use social media <laughs> in the positive because it gets a bad rap a lot. Because, you know, I mean, um, there are studies coming out that we're addicted to social media, that it's causing people to go into depression and all that stuff. Um, and so maybe you're wondering how you can use it um, in the positive and how you can use it as an educational tool, trying to figure out how your food comes from and all that good stuff. And our guest today, Shay, or actually our guest like 10 months ago, um, Shay does a great job educating consumers and also farmers on what he's doing to grow onions and asparagus and a bunch of other produce. He's got a huge Instagram account, TikTok account, and YouTube channel that I think his TikTok videos have amassed like millions and millions of views, which is huge. So... If you're on TikTok, if you're on Instagram, go follow Shay. You will enjoy all of his content. Um, lately, in the past few months here in 2021, he's been sharing a lot of great information on how workers from Mexico, how they come here to pick produce, what that whole experience was like for them, uh, how it's really dangerous and how it's really difficult for them to come here a lot of the time, um, just you know, through the whole process of getting a work visa and all that. So if you want to learn more about that, go check out Shay. Uh, you'll find all that stuff in the description of this podcast. 
this is an old one, but a good one. I think you'll enjoy it. And anyway, thanks so much for listening. Again, this is episode 109. It is a re-air of episode 68 from last year with Shea Myers. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week with a new episode. All right. Well, Shea Myers, thanks, man, for joining us. I'm really excited to talk with you. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I I found I stumbled upon your account on Instagram and TikTok, and I know you're huge on both of those things. So we'll get into those a little bit. But um, tell us real quick about your background. So how'd you grow up and what are you doing now? Sure. I, uh, I grew up as a farm kid. Um, I guess I E the name, uh, on my, uh, social channels, Shea, Shea farm kid. Uh, I'm, I'm a third generation grower of, uh, lots of different crops. I'm kind of a hybrid grower. So it's not fair to the guys that, you know, will be watching this that are boots on the ground farmers, uh, managing the crop on a daily basis. I mean, I, I grow around it. I understand it. Well, I, I know enough to, uh, to fake my way through a lot. Um, but if you're, if you want, you know, uh, to ask me how many uh, units of NP or K to put on your onion crop, that's probably not a question that I ought to be answering, or at least if I answer, you don't want to listen to me too closely. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I went to college from, uh, I guess, 01 to 05 got done. And, and I didn't know if I was going to come back to the farm to our operation, but no one was going to come back at that point. And so it was more about a legacy and an opportunity. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be an actual, well, to say an actual farmer is not the right thing because to most people I am a farmer. Um, but I didn't, I don't want to fix things. I suck at fixing things. That's really my problem. So I had to look at it from a business standpoint and, and look at where my skill set and my, my abilities could be leveraged and utilized and magnified. And uh, the family and the farm found somewhere for, for me to do that. And that ended up being fresh pack. Um, fresh pack onions is kind of our, the core of our business. And we were onion growers from, uh, the early seventies, all the way, you know, all the way to when I started in 2005, but we didn't pack or market our own crop. And so they, they decided to take a risk on me, uh, take a risk for, as a business. And we learned lots of lessons and I made lots of mistakes and we ended up where we are today, which is probably in the top 10 largest onion, uh, grower packer shippers, um, in the country. Um, and we continue to grow and try and improve and expand. And that's why I'm here at the noisy trucks in the background in California running a, a, a packing operation here. Well, I mean, you can't make mistakes or, I mean, you can't make, you can't be successful without a few mistakes along the way. So that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so what does the whole onion production system look like? I mean, how long does it take for an onion to grow? What's it like, um, kind of picking them from the ground and sorting? I've seen a lot of your videos on Instagram and just kind of how, the whole sorting thing goes on. So what does that whole process look like? You know, it really depends on the, the region that you're in. In the California um, growing region, everything's done by hand. Um, so you, you, you plant a crop in October, uh, at least the first onions will be planted in California in the Central Valley in October. They'll be harvested uh, the 1st of June. And when I say harvested, just that you come in with a hand crew after, you know, undercutting those onions lifting them, separating the roots from the soil, letting them dry a little bit. And the crew will, what we call top and tail. They'll cut the top off and they'll trim the roots, put them in a, in a bin. And then we bring those into the packing shed um, and go pretty much hand to mouth, hand to mouth, field to bag, field to bag, um, um, day to day. Now, if you go to the Northwest to what we call the storage crop, um, Spanish varieties, 
uh, we will will plant in April and May, and then we'll harvest. We start harvest in about 10 days. So you're going to harvest usually at least the entire month of August and the entire month of September. But those onions are then put into storage buildings, um, either refrigerated or ambient cooled storages. And then you pull them out as you need um, and as the market dictates and run them over your packing line and then put them in a bag. And those onions, instead of being hand to mouth from the field to the bag in a few days, we can harvest those onions in September, mid-September, leave them in those storages and the last onions will come out in mid-May. So they can, they can stay in storage for a really long time. Oh, wow. I did not know that. that that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of bank up all the onions you have and slowly kind of transport them out to consumers. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. So what is, is your production more? Is it conventional? Is it organic? And if so, which production method do you guys have and why? So we do a small amount of organic. Um, most of what we do is conventional. We, we tried to pivot a little bit harder to organic, but what we found was, at least for us um, and the crops that we can grow where we are, the market was fairly saturated already. The, the volume needed, and we're farming about 4,200 acres um, total, not of just onions, but across the seven or eight crops that are in our rotation. Um, we, we just couldn't grow enough volume to get the economies of scale that we needed to, to make it work um, with organic production. Um, and we couldn't get the economies of scale just because the sales, um, at least as far as who we could capture, were not there. Um, so we, we do have organics every single day on onions um, during our storage season. So from September to uh, May, but it's, I mean, 1%, 2% of our total volume. Gotcha. Okay. Now going off of that, um, you, you are doing a lot of really cool stuff on Instagram and TikTok. And I think it's such a cool resource because consumers can go to social media, see what's going on in a farm. And you're doing a great job of that. So what kind of inspired you to kind of showcase what's going on on these super duper popular social media platforms? Yeah, the why is kind of interesting. I started more on Instagram. Um, I still have lots of a good presence there and, and more long form videos. But I, the reason that I even started on Instagram initially was to try and give people details, specifics, like be an onion expert, just about onions, not as agriculture as a whole. And at what turned out to what really was the aha moment or the thing that changed the way that I produce content was a dinner meeting probably five years ago now um, with a new onion buyer, a new produce buyer in, uh, in Arizona. We sat down at dinner and I was showing him pictures of the fields and uh, uh, not, the, not of the fields, I'm sorry, the finished product of onions and bags and the different types of packs that we had. And he said, hey, can I see, I'd really like to see the tree that the onions grow on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was like, wow, you know, and, and, and I, I didn't, I didn't laugh at him and I didn't say something to him then, but that was a significant turning point for me to take to, to say, okay, not only does the consumer need an education, but even the buyers need an education. And I really need to, um, not dive so deep, at least all of the time in my content and create product. And so as I started to do that, my LinkedIn content got more consumer centric and less buyer centric all the time. And so then the crossover to TikTok and to into Instagram was kind of natural. It just kind of worked. I still don't, I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram. I don't understand it so much. When TikTok came out, it was just one of those, it was low lying fruit. It was something that was kind of fun and quick and easy to do. And the content was similar. And so I went there and I think it's important for us, all of us as growers, 
uh, to share as much as we can about what we do and the interest level, which is obvious because my content's not that good, but it's consistent, um, is the interest level that regular people have in understanding how their food's grown, what we do as farmers, what decisions or what, what factors go into the decisions that we make and, and what we do and why we do it. What's our labor situation like? What do we pay the people? All of those things the consumer really is interested in and we just need to tell the story because if we don't, someone else is going to tell that story for us and we may not like the story that they tell because it's not always the whole story. Yeah, no, totally. That, that's, a, that's such a good point. And one of our previous guests had on, or she was talking about, um, they were kind of growing their social media platform too. And they were talking with an older grower that was like, you know what, people don't, don't need to know on what goes on at a farm. And I feel like this younger generation of farmers are being more proactive on social media to kind of showcase what's going on. Because like you said, if you don't get out there and show them what's going on, somebody else is going to doctor up some random and fake information that's going to sour how consumers see agriculture. So do you have any advice for farmers that are kind of thinking about starting and showcasing what they do on social media? Yeah, just do it. I mean, that's really it. It's about, it's not about just quality. I mean, I think there's certain things that people are going to be drawn to more, but more than anything, it's just take what you enjoy talking about, the stories that you can tell comfortably, what you do on a daily basis and, and share it. It's, it's nothing more than that. You just got to figure out a way um, that makes it easy enough for you to be consistent and constant and have a meaningful message behind what you do. And that meaningful message does not mean um, a specific story. It just means something that when, when the content pops up that someone can learn or, or uh, appreciate what you do on the farm or enjoy what you enjoy on a farm. I mean, you could be talking about you know, all the cool things like the perfect farming life type stuff. You could talk about all the things that just piss you off all day long. You could talk about, I mean, there's a million different angles you can take, but just find something that you enjoy and, and create. I like that. I think the most important thing there, at least that I've learned is just being consistent. I mean, that way, like your followers or, or the consumers can know exactly when you're going to post content, what you're going to cover and stuff like that. So I think consistency is key too. Um, all right. So a lot of your videos, and I think I saw that you were on ABC News a couple of months ago or something talking about the COVID-19 impacts on the mm -hmm. ag industry. And I mean, it's it's been crazy. A lot of farmers have been adapting. I know some here in Florida, they've been kind of selling direct to consumers during this crazy time. So what sort of an impact have you seen um, with your business and the impact COVID's having on it? Yeah. So the impact in the onion industry, onions and potatoes are two of those things, um, commodities that are really consumed on a high level at the restaurant level, like in food service. So we have been impacted probably um, as dramatically, I think, as any, almost any food commodity. And maybe that's, I mean, obviously it's what I know. So I, I don't mean to speak out of turn if someone has it worse or, or has seen more challenges than we do, but um, certainly onions and potatoes are, are right there on that list. What we have seen is, I mean, even today and with the reclosures kind of going on now, or even the consumer, comfort level in going out is a reduction in purchases of onions. Uh, and that has resulted in, and the storage crop that resulted in a lot of onions going in pits, um, um, compost piles, um, animal feed, et cetera. A lot of stuff went that way. Potatoes are doing the same thing. We were able to pivot um, in some ways by focusing on consumer packs, retail packs, and the farmers to family boxes are all using a, a three pound 
mesh netted bag and we have all that equipment. So we adjusted and, and moved equipment to California that we weren't planning on. But I mean, I, the, the, the impact in onions and potatoes, and I'll speak to onions more specifically just because that's what I know. We, we will continue to fill if everything we turn this key on tomorrow or the flip the switch and everything was normal tomorrow, the onion industry is going to feel the impacts from a production and price point um, for the next 14 to 16 months because we plant, like I talked about, we, we, we've already planted that entire crop and that was pre-COVID. It was April, you know, just the leading edge, bleeding edge, March and April is when we plant onions. So we planted every onion normal. Those onions won't be harvested. They'll start in the next 20 days harvesting. And so we basically have the supply completely full with the processors almost, well, I'm going to say virtually shut down. I mean, the processors that take a, a 20 or 30% of the onions out of our valley, which is seven, eight, nine, maybe 10,000 acres, there's nowhere for those onions to go. So they're going to be available on the market. And those that follow, well, the basic economics says that for every 1% in oversupply, there's a 7% decrease in price. Um, so if we're over by 30, 40, 50%, I don't even know what that translates into. We can't obviously go to negative territory, but we can certainly go to really, really low numbers. Right. I can imagine that is absolutely nuts. Uh, so compared to a good year, would you say how much like onions and potatoes go into these landfills that aren't used? Like, is that a normal thing that kind of happens? Virtually I mean, nothing. Virtually nothing. Okay. So it's a little bit yeah. more efficient. What do you, yeah, we, the food waste, I mean, there's entire industries and in onions and potatoes that are based on the byproduct, the waste product. So there's almost, at least in onions and potatoes, it, there's hardly any waste. Okay. Gotcha. Generally. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you think there's any, I mean, like anytime, any big time lessons that the ag industry can kind of learn from this? I mean, is it, is it just kind of preparation or just kind of like planning and to make sure that if something like this happens again, we have an extra avenue or what do you think that we can learn from this? That's a really good question. I mean, there's got to be lessons learned. I mean, there's, there, there's a couple of things, but they're bigger political lessons, I think, um, to me. And, and it kind of even goes back to, if we look at our medicines coming from overseas, hopefully we have a new found appreciation and understanding of what and where our food comes from uh, and who brings it to us. So does that mean some additional protections for imports? And that's, it's just really a touchy deal, especially with the, uh, um the new trade agreement i'm uh throw me that acronym out there the um the new nafta or yeah the new nafta yeah yeah i mean you, you just got done negotiating that i mean because frankly here's here's one of the things we get lots of onions from both mexico and canada as an example we don't need any of those onions but we have free markets and they have opportunities to the, to get to those markets and it's profitable for them so they're here but if if we want to if there's a disruption in that supply chain at some future date and we don't have the infrastructure in place we won't have those those produce items. I think sugar sugars are really like a lot of people look at the sugar industry and they look at the protections that are granted sugar. Um, and the idea that you could bring sugar from any country, right? And 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 cheaper. However, the infrastructure that is required to create sugar is massive. Billions of dollars of infrastructure. And so the U.S. a long time ago, World War II era, decided to protect the sugar industry, and so it is protected. Um, and we can say, well, there's subsidies, and there's this and that, and there are. There and there's not direct subsidies in sugar, but there are subsidies. But do we want 
to protect those things. And that's the bigger picture, I think, the, the, the political side. In what ways do we need to not shut down free trade, but to protect the, the ability for the U.S. producer to supply food to our nation? Right. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And before I started this podcast, I had no idea, especially here in Florida, I had no idea how big of a, an impact and um, like, like dumping of different food stuff, like from Mexico or tomatoes, kind of how that kind of impacts our economy. So does that kind of impact you guys in California with potatoes and onions? Which part? So we'll have, I've heard from some like, so that we had um, a vegetable, vegetable farmer in South Florida to where he has heard stories where, to, where um, like Mexico will sign deals with distrib distribution companies and they'll get tomatoes for super duper cheap, but they don't go through mm -hmm. those checks and balances that stuff like here goes through. So you so, guys oh, yes. experience that too? So we experience it and we experience it differently. I think one of the challenges, and I throw this out there and people get frustrated with me, but the, 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 the cartels, when you're looking, you know, when you look at different countries and the different um, political systems, the different ethical systems, the different um, logistical systems that they have, uh, there are different approaches to the value or different value positions on what a crop is worth. And so if you look at, at Mexico as an example, with, with the cartel exchanges down there and the corruption that is there, that the dollar, the U.S. dollar is very important. So they are willing to send onions into the United States at break even or slightly less simply for access to our dollar. And that from, in the produce industry is a problem all by itself. And there are lots of people that we could, you could, you could, this would be one of those great bantering things where you could have somebody from the other side of the aisle on this one or, or the, uh, from south of the border that's a big marketer. And they would, they wouldn't appreciate what I'm saying. And we would go back and forth, back and forth, right? I'm sure I don't have every single fact. I don't have every single detail just right. But I can tell you that the cartels are involved on a significant level in produce as a whole. And so the economics, the normal economics don't always come into play. And on this side of the border, we are functioning, operating, um, selling produce, following the rules without drug money to help us. And therefore, it's hard to compete with stuff that comes up, you know, from uh, from south of the border. Gotcha. That's very. I always kind of thought that there might be some drug money there involved, but I had no clue. I mean, that that is that is crazy. Um, so, I mean, hopefully that kind of improves over time. But so I, I also got to ask. I'm I want to get my pilot's license one day, and I know you're an avid flyer. So I mean, is that something you just kind of enjoy at the end of the day, going up and flying for a few hours? I mean, it seems really cool. Yeah. So yes, I do. I'm not the, uh, what they call the, the kind of guy who would just go for what they call a hundred dollar hamburger, right? I don't just like the fly to just to fly. Um, but it was, it was kind of inculcated in me from my grandfather. He was a pilot. Um, I almost, when I was in college, uh, I probably, I, I thought very hard about commercial aviation. Um, had nine 11 not happened with the shutdowns and the curtails, uh, that they had, I might be in that industry instead. Uh, what I decided to do about I guess close to 15 years ago was I was going to have to figure out a way to combine my work and the ability and opportunity to fly. So I, most of my business travels, um, I, I do myself if they're within about, I don't know, a thousand, 1200 miles. I fly myself there for those, for those meetings and for those customer visits. And, uh, that's how I do most of my travel and most of my flying. So I don't do a lot of just jump in and, you know, go fly around, but a lot of mission 
um, driven stuff, which is just kind of my type A, you know, red personality. Anyway, I like to be doing something to feel like I'm doing it the right way. You know, totally. I can't just enjoy things because I should, even though I should. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's not bad. That's a pretty good answer to do it. That's pretty fun. Yeah. My grandpa was a pilot as well. And he sold his plane a couple years ago, but he would always, he'd pick me up. We'd go flying for about 30 minutes to an hour. It, would, it was always super, super fun. And he, so here in Florida, he was flying into Tallahassee one time back when um, Jeb Bush was governor and he was going up on approach and he got a radio call from traffic control. They're like, Hey, you need to divert your course right now. And he was like, uh, why? Air Force One is coming in right behind you. He was like, oh, all right, I'll move. So George W. was coming in to see his brother. So wow. that was always one of his favorite stories to tell. We'd hear yeah, it. Yeah, like that's a good one. He's lucky he didn't have an F-16 on his uh, off of his wing during that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen one of your videos. You had them like, what, less than a mile flying by, right by you? Yeah, they were two miles out on that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah they, they were elite, but they weren't intercepting me. Like if you go on a TFR, a temporary flight restriction, like with, the, with Air yeah. Force One, sometimes they'll actually come right up off your wing and tell you to get out of there. Sweet. I'm sure that'd be a little frightening experience. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shay, this has been cool, man. Kind of learning about you and your business. Um, so if people want to follow you on Instagram and TikTok and see all of your awesome educational videos, where can they go to kind of follow you and see what you're doing? Yeah. So in, in either, on either platform, it's Shay farm kid. That's S H A Y farm kid. Um, I'm, I'm in both of those places and, and try to share similar content. Um, and then, uh, if you're, if you're on LinkedIn and you want to find me on the business side, it's just, uh, Shay Myers and uh, the company name is a white produce. All right. Well, cool, man. Well, appreciate you coming on, man. We wish you the best of luck. I hope you guys continue to fight COVID. Hope everything gets a lot better in that industry. Absolutely. We all do. We'd all thanks so much. I appreciate you having me.